Welcome to The Prefix, a new podcast about the intersection of food and drink. I'm Christina Kim. And I'm Shanna Farrell. In our first season, debuting fall 2017, we're taking one theme per episode and looking how it manifests in both food and drink. Until then, we're doing shorter episodes that we're calling pop-ups. And this is our second pop-up on cookbooks. Christina, you've got a love for historic cookbooks. How'd you get interested in them? It's kind of weird, but the first historical cookbook that I ever got was at a library book sale. And it was like an entire parking lot full of books. And I was really gravitated to the historical cookbooks because I just, as a child, I just felt like when I was picking them up, I was walking into history. It like fascinated me that they were used books, they were older, that somebody else had held this book and cooked from it. And I don't think as like a second grader, or third grader when I was going to these, I was I could have talked about it quite in that way. <laughs> but I actually still have, and I to this day, this book has come with me everywhere I've moved. It's called The American Woman's Cookbook. It's edited by Ruth Baralzheimer. The first copyright is in 1938, but the copy I have is from 1944. And it reads a little bit like a home economics guide. I just, I love it. It's got crazy pictures. It's got jello molds. It's building up a meal from a very traditional kind of French standpoint. And then at the end, like suggested meal plans that also feel too fancy or in some ways now too cheesy. And they're really interesting in that way. So that actually brings us to our guest for today. Who'd you talk to about cookbooks? I actually had the opportunity to interview Celia Sack from Omnivore Books in San Francisco, California. All right, let's hear a little bit from your interview with her. Let's do it. I'm Celia Sack. I'm a native San Franciscan, born here in 1969, and I've lived here almost all my life. I um, also own Omnivore Books on food in San Francisco, as well as Noe Valley Pet Company, a really great pet supply store that's next door. Can you tell me a little bit about what Omnivore Books is? Sure. Omnivore Books is one of the only cookbook stores in the country. I've got about two-thirds new cookbooks and uh, books about food and about a third antiquarian. So rare books on cooking, on particular foods, on how to run your own grocery store, everything food-related. So what inspired you to open Omnivore Books? Was it this vision that you've always had or... How did you come to open it? Well, I was a rare book specialist for many years at an auction house, and my collecting interest was books on food, though I was the head of modern literature and oddly the specialist in rare golf books and rare angling books, whatever sort of came our way. But I always loved the food books. There was something about their connection to the past and the present that seemed very immediate. And so I thought it would be really fun to open a bookstore that was all food books, but I thought I'll never make it if it's all antiquarian. Uh, So I have to sort of be the gateway drug to collecting. So I have all these new books, which is great, but then next to them, I've got the older books. It's really satisfying to see somebody picking up a, you know, new book on, say, Bay Area foraging. But then next to it is a book from the 1960s on back-to-the-land foraging. And then there's a book from World War II about victory gardening and how to scrounge for vegetables and, you know, out while you're dealing with wartime issues. And then, you know, going back and back and back. So it's really fascinating for me to help people make that connection. Do you ever see yourself as like an archivist or 
the space almost as a museum. I love that you just said it's a gateway. More than archivists, do you see yourself as an educator, as like introducing people to what cookbooks mean or signify? Yeah, very much so. And I also see myself as opening the world of rare books to people because oftentimes, you know, especially for me when I was a young collector, I felt really shut out of that world. You'd go into a used or rare bookstore and all the rare books were behind the counter. They didn't want you to touch them. They looked at you suspiciously if you were interested. And it just makes it very removed. And I thought, you know, I'm going to trust people. <laughs> it's a small space. They're not going to take a book from the 1600s and throw it across the room. <laughs> so I want those books to be available to, for people to touch and handle. And it's a blast to see their excitement. One example is I've got all these leaves from an herbal from the 1600s. So it's got these beautiful woodcuts of garlic or, you know, different herbs and plants. And it's even gotten some handwritten notes in it from the time about where you could find it, like over ye bog, in ye fen, <laughs> you know, it's just incredible. And I'll show them to people and they're $15 each, you know, and they're originals and people just can't believe that this is 400 years old and that they're touching it. And, and they'll say, I don't even feel like I should be touching this. And I'm like, yes, you should. I'm a really tactile person. And there's something about holding an object that is old, especially when it's something that was part of someone's like colloquial daily life. It was meaningful in the way that it was practical. Mm -hmm. There is something about touching something that makes you feel like you are going back in time. But what is it for you that's specifically important about cookbooks? What do older cookbooks shed a light into? Well, cookbooks are something that touches everyone. A rare golf book, I mean, you're never gonna need it, right? <laughs> but cooking, you're either cooked for or you are cooking. And it's something that connects us to, to each other and to something that we do every day, which is to eat uh, and to also cook. And also looking back, it's so important to see, you know, to see the way that food has developed over time. I mean, one of the things that fascinates me is that the books from pre-refrigeration turn of the century, say, are so much more relatable to us now than the ones from mid-century when, when all that horrible frozen stuff came in and everyone was eating the, you know, gelatin salads with, with bananas. But then you look back at something from 1900 and it'll be a nasturtium salad or a sardines on toast, something that looks like it would be on a menu today. And it's really interesting to look and see where we're connected to the past. So I, I think for me, that's what really drew me to cookbooks is that they, they bring us through time. I feel like it's almost like a bug that bites you and you get mm -hmm. that first one and then you want to know more. Do you remember the first one that kind of Got you hooked? Yeah, actually, it was Evan Kleiman's book, Cucina Rustica. She actually is the host of Good Food on KCRW in LA. And that book, I think, was the first cookbook that I owned and cooked from when I got out of college and moved back to San Francisco. So I was like 21. And, you know, I spent so much of my youth and teenage years trying to avoid my mother. And she was always asking me to come into the kitchen and cook with her. And I just wanted to get as far away as possible because I was a teenager. So I missed that opportunity with my mother. And so having this cookbook really showed me, especially about pasta. Now, when I think back, of course, I think I was 
terrible at it. I think it was just like cutting up bacon and putting it in my pasta. It was terrible. It was ugh. But you know, it was like all sticking together and uh, mushy. But she did really teach me about sort of the fundamentals of at least pasta cooking and made me realize that there's this whole world out there that can, that can teach me how to cook. Do you remember the first antiquarian cookbook that really interested you? And is there a certain time period? One of my very favorites that I have is from like 1929, I think. It may even be earlier, and it's called Roadside Marketing. And it's a guide to how to open up your own roadside stand uh, and sell your fruits and vegetables now that cars are around. People don't have to go to the city to buy their food. They can actually come out to your farm and it tells you how to talk to the customer, how to arrange your vegetables just so if you're on in a dip in the road or if you're up on a hill, you arrange it differently and how to make it desirable to your customers. And I just I find that so fascinating. It's almost like your ability to track different technology, different immigrant waves, like cookbooks are speaking to a particular audience. And in that same way, they're constructing that audience by like hailing them in such a way. So thinking about that, are there any cookbooks that have kind of surprised you in the way that they are defining the reader, especially a woman reader? So like defining femininity in a certain way or sexuality in a way that isn't the way that most people think about when they think cookbooks. A lot of people think old cookbooks and they assume 1950s housewife, Mm -hmm. you know, domesticity in its most confining sense. Is that true or has there been different times in history where cookbooks provided kind of a different perspective into femininity and domesticity? Well, I think there was a real time when the upper classes didn't cook at all. They were really for the servants to use and also for royal kitchens. I mean, that was a whole genre in itself, especially in the 16 and 1700s. There were these great books coming out of England, like the you know Royal Cook or Royal Confectioner. And they even have these wonderful folding plates that you can pull out that show how a banquet table should be laid out with all of the all the different plates and possibilities of what would be on them, which is just, it's astounding to look at them. So I think it's more class than, than sex that defines different eras of cookbooks. After World War I, servants weren't really cooking anymore. They weren't available to a lot of people anymore. And so the woman of the household would actually have to cook. The other thing is that a lot of the Southern cookbooks that were written probably... 1930s and and before were really the instructions of the African-Americans that were living in the house or were slaves. And the books themselves would say that they were authored by a white woman, but oftentimes it was really the recipes of the African-Americans that they were providing. I mean, these women weren't, weren't, the white women weren't cooking in their kitchens. What's been the trend in recent years with cookbooks? Well, there's certainly a lot more, I hate the word ethnic cookbooks, but there are a lot a lot more books that expand beyond the United States and Europe. Um, I think, you know, there was this period that everyone in the 70s and 80s, everyone was really into Italian cooking and French cooking. And now we've got so many great Indian and Asian, and a lot of those are actually coming out of Australia and England. The, the English cookbooks books. English are fascinated with Indian cooking. And the Australians are so close to Southeast Asia that there are a lot of great
great books coming out of there. And I used to import those a lot because we didn't have them as available here. And now they're much more, even in the past nine years since I've been opened, uh, open, they're much more available. So, uh, there's a beautiful book, uh, that just came out called Bangkok. That's all about Thai food. There's Sri Lankan. I mean, we're getting into some smaller countries. There's a, a Ghanaian cookbook that just came out. And as I said, often those are originally published in Australia and England, and then they are being reprinted here, which is great because eBooks are available and books are cheap. Publishers have had to think about how to make a book collectible almost as an art object. And so many of them are coming out really, really beautifully. And there was a trend up until about last year to really make them almost into coffee table books, but they were not easy to cook from. And now that's reverting back a little bit to being cookbooks that people can actually cook from, but that are trying to be really, really beautiful. I think Ottolenghi really changed the scene. I'm sure that publishers are tying themselves in knots to figure out <laughs> what what was it about his books that, that got people so excited? Is it the puffy cover? Is it the ingredients? Is it the photography? You know, he's changed not just the book business, but every store has to carry za'atar now and these great Middle Eastern spices. So I think that is really exciting that one author can change so much of our of our habits, eating habits and cooking habits. So how do you actually source your books and choose what you're going to buy and have in the stores? Well, I guess number one is I have to say I have to judge a book by its cover <laughs> because oftentimes I don't get to see the interior before I choose. I'm picking from catalogs. When I pick them out from the UK or Australia, I don't have any samples of them. Um, so I'll order one or two. And then if I really love it, I'll get more. But the cover is really what draws people. You know, there's if it's really an exciting and lovely image, that'll grab you. I had this really interesting conversation yesterday with some people who were making the Berkeley Bowl cookbook. And they wanted my advice about different aspects of it. But one thing was that the cover didn't really draw me in. It was a lot of sort of disparate vegetables, produce. It had ramps, it had tomatillos, things that didn't go together at all, squash. And then they were showing me some photos from the interior. And there was this gorgeous photo of fresh currants that almost looked like gooseberries against this slate background. And I said, that's that's your cover. I mean, that is going to draw people in. It's gorgeous. It almost looks like a still life painting from the 1600s. And I said, booksellers are going to put it face out because it's so beautiful. That's kind of what you want. So that's my, my first thing. And then obviously I look at the author and the subject. Local books are always popular. I mean, the Burma Superstar book is selling so wonderfully for me. I cannot imagine that it's selling well in Ohio. So local is is really important to me. Then I'll really dive in and buy a lot of them. The author's name is important. And then also I try to stand out and I sell a lot of books to professional chefs, like the Fiden books that are by professionals and that are really high end. So what do you think the future of cookbooks is? Hmm... I have no idea, I'm happy to say. I mean, I know they'll stay in business. I think cookbooks and children's books are really something that people like to have and hold. You know, I worry more about travel books, map books and stuff like that because people can get that online very easily. What's the future of omnivore books? Hopefully I'll just bring in a lot more people. <laughs> 
I love getting new collectors in. It's really fun, especially for the antiquarian. I have this guy that started buying for me recently who lives in Alabama, and he has a string of barbecue restaurants. And I've been building him a beautiful collection of antiquarian American cookbooks, and particularly Southern. And it's just really fun for me to to be able to find collectors like that and build their libraries. So hopefully I'll get to continue doing that even more. Thank you so much for all your time today. My pleasure. It was great talking to you. So did you notice that Celia mentioned Jell-O salad in the interview? I did, mostly because I have no idea what that is, and I don't think I've ever heard of a Jell-O salad before. It's crazy to me because the reason I've loved historical cookbooks is because the minute I pick one up, especially if it's from the 1930s, 40s, or 50s, I like need to see if there's going to be a molded salad or a jello salad. What makes you look for that? I think it's because jello salad is the dish that exemplifies the worst of the home economics era. But at the same time, I think there's something there that's attached to like reimagining womanhood and what domestic work can look like. They're defining their labor at home in a way that matches the industrial public sphere. And they're actually trying to, one, make their lives easier, to be modern in a way that their male counterparts are accessing just from being in the public sector and having their jobs be acknowledged and industrial and scientific. And so... Instant gelatin was like this amazing treat and jello and gelatinous things were like aspects which had for a long time not been accessible all of a sudden are and it allows them to be scientists and modern in their own homes and so I think that's why I'm really into them because I think no one thinks about the significance of them beyond frightening. Is there a jello recipe in the Ruth Berlsheimer book? There's like a whole chapter on it and I'm not gonna lie I always wanted to make one. Do you want to make one? Yes. Let's make one. Okay. (laughs) All right. So we're in my kitchen in Oakland, California. And I must say my kitchen is unintentionally very 50s. So I was thinking I would finally actually make a recipe out of the American Woman's Cookbook. And I chose a recipe for us. If you just want to flip to, I think it's in the salad section and it's... 437. Okay, here we are. Page 437. The lime fruit salad in mold. Okay, so we've got one package lime gelatin. We've got to boil one cup of water. And then we have to have one cup of cold water. Four slices of canned pineapple. Half a cup of canned white cherries. A quarter cup of red seeded grapes cut into fancy shapes. There's real no explanation what fancy shapes means. Four pears halved. No explanation of what type of pears. Just pears. And then the instructions read, Dissolve gelatin in boiling water and add cold water. Set aside to cool slightly. Add fruit and pour into mold. This is crazy looking. Oh, there it is on the table. I rolled. Um, all the pears are floating. How did they make it stay to the bottom? I thought the whole thing was that the pears would sink. That's what I thought too. Not that they'd be buoyant. The magic of this is that we don't have to know what's going to happen for like another hour or two when this sets. It's going to be alchemy in your refrigerator. I hope so. I don't know. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) 
Okay, so the jello salad is done. It's halfway between what I expected it to look like, and it's halfway very different because I don't think I actually had an image of what a jello salad would look like. But it is bright green, and the fruit is kind of just all over it. I thought it was going to look like it looks in the cookbooks. I even arranged it, like, hoping that it was going to look really pretty. It looks scary. It does. I mean, this jello came from a box. It smelled like lime, and there's no fresh lime in here, so it's definitely crawling with artificial ingredients. I have deep respect for homemakers of the past that ever made this look beautiful, because I'm not there. So I'm really glad we made a jello mold, but I don't think I ever need to make that again. But if you're jonesing for the recipe that we made today, head on over to our website, theprefix.com. And if you want to check out what it actually looks like, follow us on our Instagram or Twitter at Prefix Podcast. And if you've been digging our theme song, it's called Yellow Roads by Halfstack. This is actually our last pop-up. We'll be back in November with the first season of The Prefix. Until then, I'm Shanna Farrell. And I'm Christina Kim. Bye.